Welcome to another episode of the Rent Stories podcast, where we talk to New Yorkers about renting in the city. Today, we're defying the law of our podcast theme to bring you a guest from outside New York, but for very good reason. Our guest today is Rodolfo Rodriguez, the former director of Health and Wellness Ecosystem at the Housing Authority of the city of Austin, Texas. Rodolfo has served in leadership roles in many economically segregated cities like Los Angeles, Denver, and Austin, and has built an equity and justice toolkit that radically transforms cities by leveraging housing, social and health services, digital access, and public policy to promote needed systemic change. Rodolfo was also recently selected by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as one of the 2019 Culture of Health leaders and is the first leader in the program's history to come from any public housing authority. Welcome, Rodolfo. Thanks for having me. So um, uh, just a little anecdote. I lived in Austin for eight years before moving to New York. So I'm really excited to talk to you and, and to get your point of view. Uh, I love Austin. My brother's a Longhorn, so I have a long relationship with the area. Uh, and most of my family lives in Texas these days. How long have you been in Austin? So actually, I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas. And after graduating high school, I arrived to Austin to pursue an architecture degree at UT Austin. And I stuck around after I graduated and worked with a health foundation. And then an opportunity came up and I went to Los Angeles, uh, moved to Denver for work and school and also returned to Austin two years ago. So I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Texas. Wow. Yeah. You actually mentioned in your LinkedIn bio that you're the child of Mexican immigrants and you grew up uh, on the border in El Paso in sort of difficult circumstances. I think a really great place to start, I guess, at the beginning would be for, uh, for you to tell us about uh, how that experience shaped your view of housing and, and motivated you to pursue this line of work. That's a good question. You know, I feel very glad to be able to say that um, my professional trajectory has actually been extremely intentional. I actually grew up in public housing in El Paso, Texas. And though national, nationwide, El Paso is known as one of the safest cities in the country. It also borders Juarez, Mexico, which is in the top 10 most dangerous borders in the world. And so that narrative actually speaks a little closer to me. Having been raised in public housing in the U.S., by default of eligibility, essentially marks you as being living in poverty. And so I grew up being poor. However, that was my reality Monday through Friday. But that perception was actually skewed because Saturday and Sunday, I spent every weekend with my abuelitas in Juarez, Mexico. And to me, poverty was very different there. And because I grew up with this world vision of poverty in a first world class and Mexico still considered a developing country, depending on who you ask, um, I realized um, I had, I was advantaged and disadvantaged. Now, I remember one of my earliest moments that kind of, I always go back to when I think about reflection was my mother and I were actually with my sister. We were, I was probably around five. And we're walking to the corner store from our apartment. And it's about maybe two long blocks, not very far. And on our way back after crossing one block, during broad daylight, there was a drive-by shooting. And 
this was the first time, you know, I have heard the sounds, but this was the first time I was right in the middle of one. And I did as everybody else did. So I just dropped on the, you know, I fell to the ground and um, my sister was kind of more in shock. So my mom got back up and sort of tackled her down and we walked away healthy. Um, and by healthy at this point, I meant alive. And we made it to my apartment safely that day. So for me, when I, I think about health in place, maybe at the time I wasn't thinking about it in terms of housing, um, I thought about what health means to different communities. For my community specifically, health meant safety, making it from your apartment to school or to the corner store safe and back. So that moment has driven and uh, sort of my trajectory and has it continues to shape the way I make decisions or where I move and the impact I try to make. So that that is an incredible story. And um, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. But I, I feel like your encounter at that time reinforced you the importance of having a system that protects people living in, in the city, that there are not just efforts to guide public health and public safety, but that housing plays a really significant role in, in security and in giving people a sense of security. So you, you've now lived in a, a lot of different communities throughout the U.S. Uh, how, how is that one sort of seminal experience of, of fearing for your life and being able to return to housing and, and then seeing in other parts of the country how the risk of violence in, in the community has you know, encroaches on people's sense of security translated into your sort of larger focus on health overall and, and wellness overall and, and trying to create these programs, you know, related to housing authorities uh, in other cities? So I, I was very fortunate to live in different places and learn and listen to different communities. So I realized that health in different places means something different. Like, I think about my role in Los Angeles, and one of the biggest concerns for that specific community was, you know, statistics showed at the population level that childhood obesity was, there was a, an epidemic, and they wanted to address that. And what we realized is when you look at zip codes, that played such a huge role. The, I would say, unhealthiest zip codes, um, when you think about childhood obesity, when you overlap that with things like access to safe parks, food deserts. I mean, these are things we need to maintain or avoid childhood obesity, right? Places to work out, accessible and affordable food. That was what was important there. And then I think about the communities that I served in Denver, where particularly this one neighborhood, Globeville, Liria, Swansea, that zip code in that neighborhood is the most polluted in the country. And I think about the statistics that showed on the maps in terms of poverty overlaid with asthma and any environmental health concern. And as, as there's also discussion on, on breaking down a highway that sort of goes through that neighborhood to expand it so it would only add to the problem. Um, it would alleviate transportation, supposedly, but at the expense of already at-risk communities. So I came back to, so, and here's where I'll tell you that the common theme is in these three cities, though, Austin, Los Angeles, and Denver. And it, it's, it's probably true at New York. Somewhere in each city, there are communities that have lived in pretty bad conditions, um, maybe some 
communities here in Austin don't have AC and they have to survive the Texas heat. Maybe some communities in Denver don't have a heater and they have to survive the winter. Or maybe they don't have parks or things like that. And now what's happening is some of these cities are actually thriving economically and development and redevelopment is starting to sort of take over. The, the problem with the, 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 these three cities is um, we are using statistics that these communities want this, these communities need parks, these communities need bike lanes, yet we aren't taking into account once things are built How are we building them for them, these communities we keep talking about? And also, how are we ensuring that they aren't displaced, right? So when you move someone from their housing or their place, you're disrupting their entire uh, lifestyle. You're taking them further away from their doctor. You're taking them further away from their schools. You're taking them further away from their loved ones. And some folks are getting priced out or they're a paycheck away and may end up um, experiencing homelessness. So housing is a very powerful lever, I think, in, in each of these cities. That definitely resonates with us as you know, an organization that's focused on creating transparency for tenants uh, to understand what the quality of life might be in, uh, in a neighborhood. And one of the challenges that we've faced is prioritizing the many things that you you just described uh, in terms of the needs of the tenant. And, and there's a lot there, right? And, and, and we find that every individual has their own uh, prioritization of those issues. But um, as uh, a housing expert, uh, is there a, a rank priority that you would give to those issues? Yeah, definitely. I would say I'm an impact-oriented leader, but I need to unpack what impact means just to set the tone. You can have transactional impact, and that's kind of what's that one thing you would do that would make a big difference. Or if you want to work with vulnerable communities that are in poverty, deep poverty, or experiencing homelessness, you have to understand that transaction won't happen. You need transformational impact. And what that means is, you know, to achieve equity outcomes, we need an equitable process. So I think for me, if I'm asked, what's the one thing I would prioritize above anything is an equitable process. So I'll talk a little bit about my role. Though I served as the director of health and wellness ecosystem for the housing authority of the city of Austin, I was intentional in how I crafted this role. My role was to advance the health and wellness outcomes of 25,000 residents living in poverty in Austin. And that wellness piece is essential because it wasn't purely healthcare. Wellness could be mental health, it could be trauma. Uh, But at the same time, my role was designed to make impact at the individual, at the community, and also at the systems level. So it's multi-pronged as well. And I think for me, process is important. So when I thought about laying the foundation for the housing authority, and also just to give you an example of of who we serve in Austin, currently in Austin, uh, reports show that in order to live a dignified life in Austin, for a family of four, you need over $90,000 of annual salary or income. And our residents in public housing in Austin on an annual basis, on average, make about $13,000. I just want to set the stage for the equity conversation. Yeah, and that's gone up a lot recently, right? It's gone up for the um, affordability piece, but income for public housing families hasn't, right? That's kind of stayed. And 
to add to that, I was super intentional coming from public housing myself that I needed community to be decision-making in my department, decision-makers. And so I actually recruited public housing residents, trained them as state-certified community health workers, paid them to do that. And then also I took advantage of a federal exemption through HUD where any increase in wages would not be penalized against. Instead of it going to rent, it would actually go towards whatever people needed to save up or to pay off debt, whatever needed. So this was like a really good opportunity. I was super intentional. And rather than just serving people, I recruited folks to deliver our wellness programs. And essentially, they were helping their neighbors improve their health. And also, they were shaping the direction and strategy of the direction of my department. If you want to improve health, you've got to create space for people in the community to sit at the table, learn how to navigate that power and dismantle the powers or systems or policies that are actually hurting. And if you want to talk about housing policy, um, I'm more than happy to talk to you about how some existing eviction policies that are true in Austin and likely across the country go against health and they're not even thinking about it. Yeah. So the problem I feel has gotten worse in Austin over the last couple of years. And, you know, the numbers that you mentioned are, are really unsurprising to me because what I saw in the time that I was there was a an influx of people from New York and people from San Francisco who were looking for a lower cost of living. They were looking for that no income tax lifestyle uh, or that you know bonus that they would get uh, in moving there. And they really drove up the cost of living anywhere near downtown uh, for sure. And definitely like as you moved out into the east side, um, we started to see, for lack of a better term, gentrification of that area where people were getting pushed further and further out. And so they were driving that that kind of impermanence uh, and that the health issues that are complicated by lack of permanent housing. So is that the unique challenge that Austin faces in the coming years? Or are there other unique problems uh, facing Texas? We know that coronavirus cases in particular are extremely high in Texas right now. And I know Austin is facing uh, a lot of uh, complexity with that. You know, New York is sort of a little bit on the other side of the curve now, and we're starting to see a, a rapid decline in cases. But uh, it seems in other parts of the country, that is becoming the number one health crisis. Uh, but that coupled with the gentrification and the increasing cost of living there must be a really challenging problem for you to face. So there's, at the national level, there's a lot of headlines about how Austin is one of the fittest cities in the country, one of the most economically sound, you know. But when you kind of look at other reports and you dive in and you focus on equity, you're also seeing that Austin is the second city in the country that's displacing Latinos quickest, right behind Denver. Uh, you're also looking at the Black population make up 8% of Austin, yet about 40% of the homeless dem- uh, population, and so it's disproportionate. I will say, having worked for elected officials in cities that have been historically, racially, and economically segregated, that are also in unique positions where they're thriving there is a lot of attention that should be paid, right? Like I think a lot of times 
political leadership or elected officials pay attention to that company that's bringing jobs? Well, you know, people from New York and California didn't just come here because real estate is cheaper. They came here because there's good jobs. And so what leadership, what was leadership thinking when bringing in or um, embracing a company that would dem- need more housing for these new workers that could outprice mm-hmm. other folks here and not bringing communities that have been here and connecting them directly to those jobs, right? A city can thrive, but it doesn't have to be at the expense of people that have been living here for a long time. So in terms of COVID, there is a lot I can expand on, but what we've done here in Austin, I I, I designed a model in partnership with partners at Dell Medical School and my team, former team, where we did have, we were in a unique position to be proactive, not reactive. So we designed a program where we would call residents that were in our program. We could prioritize them because we knew their age, which places them at greater risk for death or bad outcomes with COVID. Um, or also if they had underlying health conditions, which would also pose them at greater risk for death or bad outcomes. And we were able to provide them one-on-one health literacy or education on how to prevent from getting it. Or we were able also to catch folks who had symptoms and get them tested. And not only that, anyone who was tested that needed to quarantine, we actually connected them with every basic need like food, rent and utility assistance, things that you'd need so that it wouldn't give you an excuse to step out so that you could heal, but also protect your neighbors and also just the general public, like like grocery folks that go grocery shopping and things like that. So we could avoid those encounters. And it's exciting to see some cities did adopt this Denver we kind of advised them and they took off and did their own model. And in DC, they're also launching theirs. And this was explicitly actually to support communities of color because that's mostly who lives in public housing in Austin. And we also know uh, whether things are getting are improving in other cities or not. We know that communities of color are being impacted the most negatively. In Austin, close to half of hospitalizations related to COVID are Latino. And then we also see that our Black neighbors are, are, are the ones who are dying at quickest rates. So I, I don't want to pretend like this conversation is race neutral, <laughs> um, even in Texas. So, Of course. Yeah. No, that's um, the uh, social justice issue of the disproportionate effect of COVID on um, black people and communities of color more broadly is certainly something that is universal. Uh, and that's something that is really important for us to talk about because we saw the same thing happen in New York that um, people who uh, could leave their homes and, and uh, go live somewhere else and had the option to do that were less susceptible to the virus. And in, when they did get sick, they certainly had access or easier access to really good healthcare. Uh, this is something, so Brandon, our CEO is on uh, the podcast as well. And it's something that we were talking about earlier is the Health Starts at Home program. Brandon, what were you saying earlier about um, the program and, and you wanted to talk to, to Rodolfo about? Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that, Namal. And, and Rodolfo, thanks again for, for joining. This is a fantastic conversation. Just to start off, I grew up in an impoverished neighborhood uh, here in New York City in, in the Bronx. Um, so similar to what you were speaking about earlier, I think it's a combination of stagnant wages, legislation that is certainly stringent in certain aspects, combined with unfavorable living conditions. And as you mentioned, when you layer on the health concerns of COVID, um, it becomes a, a certainly a difficult 
and multitude of, of challenges uh, for these communities to overcome. But, you know, as it relates to, you know, the frameworks that you've rolled out in, in D.C. and other cities, what are the minimum standards, you know, that a place like New York could look to adopt to at least start addressing, you know, concerns around COVID and healthcare issues? Just to give you context, the Council of Large Public Housing Authorities, they're based in D.C., but they kind of have the... The, the full network of large public housing authorities under their subscription. And when they conducted a report, I think two years ago, they found that only 13% of large public housing authorities had a health and housing staff. So it just lets me know that not a lot of public housing authorities either have the resources or are prioritizing resources or believe it's their job to advance health. And I think COVID has forced folks to think otherwise. I will say, you know, I've gone above and beyond trying to integrate social impact in every detail of the uh, assembling the department that I've leading or uh, that I've led. But I think at the minimum, landlords should start by thinking that they actually have a role to play in advancing health. And they don't have to blur the lines and become healthcare providers, but maybe they can identify a local healthcare provider that they could partner with to connect tenants or residents with services that they need. There's good things that happen in communities, particularly for landlords, once that is addressed. One of those things, especially for folks who maybe have reached a level of stability, but they don't ha- they have housing stability, but not health stability, these are folks that are at risk of ending up in the ER, getting that expensive healthcare bill afterwards, and having to choose whether paying rent, paying for medication, paying for groceries, other vital basic needs, right? The U.S. generally is not a healthy country. So the deeper you get into the spectrum of vulnerability as it relates to financial advantage or disadvantage communities, there's likely an underlying health condition there. We're, we're just not a, a really healthy country. Uh, Second, every houser, whether they be permanent housing, whether they be uh, tiny homes, whether they be public housing, affordable housing, nonprofit, affordable housing for profit or market rate, they have housing policies. And in those housing policies, they have determined the rules of eviction. And something I wish I, I could have spent more time on because it would have had the, the, the biggest impact quickest is those eviction policies. The greatest harm a developer can cause on health at the individual or community level is evicting somebody. Eviction, if someone steps up and wants to battle them legally, then you're also creating financial harm because they're having to dip into their financial resources to be able to have an equal playing field. But let's talk about the eviction policies. In Austin, I found one of our eviction policies being a huge problem. If you hoard, that could be deemed as unsafe environment and trigger the eviction process. However, when you apply health equity, some folks have experienced trauma. Maybe they have mental health disorders and they can't possibly um, understand right how to navigate that policy or be in compliance. And so you're actually creating an unequal playing field and you may be evicting someone that isn't even comprehending your policy. 
here's another policy because public safety or violence is a, a big issue in public housing across the country. Not every, but it's definitely real here in Austin. Um, we had a 18-year-old last summer who was leaving his job as a grocery store. Um, he was a, a essential worker at HEB, which is a, a local food chain, uh, grocery store chain here in Texas, and was shot at multiple times and died on the scene. And his mother uh, was actually one of the participants for the Bringing Health Home program that we were delivering here at, uh, in Austin. And this mother came to us and explained to us what was happening. And, you know, we were in an interesting position to act as a resource navigator and a landlord. By policy, the way that our policy looked at this family that was just experiencing an unexpected death of a young member of the family was, all right, so you're a mixed income household, meaning immigration status is blurred. You've lost one um, uh, U.S. citizen dependent which means your rent's going to go up. And because the housing issues in Austin are so big, like our wait list is up to eight years long, we need to move this. We need to move you to a smaller unit because you, your family sizes down and make room for a big family that is on the wait list. And you have 30 days to do this, plus your rent is going to go up because there's one less person you'll get subsidies for. And so that was problematic. Us as the director of health over here, I was proposing we need to have a grace period where we eat the cost of that increase instead of giving them that response. What if the response was, do you need a grievance counselor? Have you ever put a funeral together? And if not, here are resources. Here's, here's a resource with the state that will help cover some financial costs. Here are ways to fundraise money if you don't have the money for it. Here are, here are some ways to manage any news anchors that want that interview with you because a lot of the deaths on uh, or, or violent crimes that are done at public housing are very public. They're published, uh, publicized through TV. Uh, so how about instead we connect you and help you grieve and mourn in a dignified way, understanding that at some point we, because of Austin's need, housing need, we do shift you over when the time's more appropriate to the right housing. So that was um, another, and, and I can keep talking about others, but landlords look at those like, oh, well, that's them displacing themselves. That's them evicting themselves without realizing we're the ones who hold the pens. We're the ones who are writing the barriers or, or, or the solutions, right? So those are just two in-depth examples. Yeah, that's actually... Um really, really apt and, and horrible, but it's it leads us to, I think, an, an important conversation just about policy and the some, some of this conversation is, is going to necessarily veer into a discussion about social justice. And um, I think the world is a, a little bit more awakened to issues of systemic racism. Uh, and a lot of work is happening on the local housing authority level to support communities of color, in particular black communities, because they've been hit hardest by the COVID pandemic. But I think even more significantly, because they've been subject to 
these restrictions and these laws and this, these language um, insertions in uh, in deeds, you know, in the sort of unspoken policy of the way that landlords have have treated um, these communities in the past. Uh, when I lived in Austin, actually, um, and in preparation for this conversation, I actually pulled this uh, this image up. I rented a house in Terrytown, which is um, near downtown and uh, has historically been a, a primarily white neighborhood. And I never, you know, before moving there, I thought about the the racial diversity of that area um, as something that uh, I needed to be concerned about. Um, this is a podcast, so you can't tell, but I'm I'm a person of color. Uh, I'm not white, and uh, a lot of our company is actually uh, non-white. When I when I lived there, I, I lived in this house that I was uh, renting a room from, and so the uh, the landlord actually showed me the deed to the house, and uh, there's this language in it that I'll actually read up because uh, I have it in front of me. Uh, it says uh, in clause seven of this deed. No part of any such premises contained in said subdivision shall ever be sold, used, or occupied by persons of any race other than the white race, nor shall be held in any way for any such person or persons other than the white race, provided, however, that this covenant shall not be construed as to prevent the occupancy by domestic servants of a different race employed by and domiciled on the premises of the owner or tenant by whom is employed for such purposes. And my my understanding is that current laws prevent this kind of discrimination. But how aware of this history do you think people are, especially people in Austin where, you know, their deeds will carry over this language year after year. And so they may have some clause later on that, you know, eliminates it or addresses it in some way. But this is the history. I, I don't believe there's enough awareness. I mean, I, I come from, uh, you know, I, I, I trained I received my architecture training at UT Austin and there was no talk about race. There was no talk about architects role in, in, in any of this. Um, even in some planning programs, like you have to be extremely intentional to go to the planning programs that have that professor that can talk about this. I think also leadership anywhere. I mean, this applies to housing and beyond. This goes to healthcare. This goes to everything. If you're not measuring it, you can't really prove you're not advancing, you know, social justice or going against it. You know, I, I just want to be frank here. Having lived in Colorado, one of the whitest states I've ever been at, you know, I spent three years there. I'm a border town Latino. I realized that Denver is this really progressive city. But even when you kind of dive deep, you know, and, and I have friends of all kinds, uh, both elected officials, activists, or those that just were, you know, showing up to work, cashing out and therefore, you know, enjoying the edibles or outdoors, whatever that is. I had a very diverse set of friends. But one of the things that I walked away with in Denver was this ideology of liberal white supremacy. And what that meant was that mm -hmm. people that are showing up, right, that are extremely progressive publicly, continue to vote or prioritize things that don't actually dismantle white privilege. And coming to Texas, I knew what I was coming back to. I'm not surprised to read that deed. The, the beautiful part for me personally is I know what I'm up against in Texas. <laughs> it's not a surprise. Here, discrimination, you know, as a, a gay border town Latino who's the son of Mexican immigrants, right? I felt it in Texas. I, I knew what I was coming back, both on a homophobia level or racism level. So there's that. I, I think 
One of the examples is I want to go back to anyone that's doing any DEI work, right? Because now I'm seeing a lot of DEI jobs pop up out of nowhere and being promoted. The, the word they're missing there is the J part, which is the justice. And the diversity, though it's important to have non-white faces, I've realized that it's important to have the right non-white faces with the right values. There are people that look like us and come from our community that are used at face value, but are throwing our communities under the bus in public, private sector, in nonprofit. It's real here. It's real everywhere. And I think for me, I have to trust the data. If you're not measuring yourself against a benchmark and constantly improving your own internal systems, then I can't possibly believe that you're not creating harm. So I know data is really important to your work, and I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about what data you're gathering and how you analyze it and use data to make decisions, because it is the source of truth, right? It's it's something that uh, is objective, and you can use it to effectively convince most of the time, uh, or at least, you know, highlight a problem because the data will enumerate the degree to which something is a problem. What, what data are you using today? And, you know, if you can maybe point our listeners at any resources where if they want to learn more about uh, the numbers, about some of the issues that we discussed, uh, that might be helpful too. So part of the Bringing Health Home program, there's a few touch points with residents. The first two touch points are you can look at them as surveys. Our team looks at them as listening opportunities where we capture their health journeys, where they talk about their health goals, barriers, desires, and some of it is quantitative, like a checkbox E, but some of it is open where they get to comment and expand. We ask a lot about their healthcare access, meaning when's the last time they've gone to primary care, the ER, XYZ, We ask if they have any of the following chronic health conditions like diabetes, hypertension. Uh, You know, we kind of list them all. We ask about social determinants of health, like how, you know, do you have enough food? Uh, Where do you go grocery shopping? What meals do you cook? Um, Do you have clothes for the winter, for the summer? Do you have internet access? We kind of ask, uh, uh, we try to get the whole family household picture. And what we did with that data is we went after grants that would allow us to respond to their multi-crisis needs versus just going after one that said diabetes. Everybody has diabetes uh, and we just kind of have to make it work. Well, no, like we have to make sure that we're meeting the individual needs of that household. So that's what we've done, right? We use the data to validate that folks have multi-crisis needs and you won't make a real difference unless you look at the whole picture and address each and every one of those. Now, we did take a whole, you know, diving deep versus going wide approach. uh, But we're learning a lot. We're learning about what it would take for someone to be inspired enough to achieve health goals in a system that's set up against them. And that's a lot. Um, But also, we are using that data to sort of lead the conversation of health and housing nationally. And here's what's kind of interesting, right? Uh, This is where I think there's a big opportunity for health and housing systems to lock arms and walk together. It doesn't have to fall on housing. 
The reality here in Austin is public housing residents are sick uh, on the more unhealthier side and over half of them go to the ER, went to the ER at least once. And for ER uh, visits, the hospitals, one ER visit a night at the ER can cost the healthcare system $4,000. And it's not necessarily tailored to the service. It's because the ER has to be ready to respond to everything so or anything. So it's super expensive. So if you have folks to who go to the ER for primary care for preventive things that could have done uh, been preventative you're actually saving them money and so it's kind of like a win-win where we figure out how to sort of shift folks away from the ER when necessary right towards a preventative measure you're helping residents get better you're addressing that housing and health stability meaning those folks likely won't be evicted due to a health crisis and also, um, healthcare system is saving money. So that's kind of a unique opportunity across the country. Uh, that's that's not just present here in Austin. Uh, maybe as a closing thought, can you talk a little bit about how you've used your position as one of the biggest landlords and your mission to uh, ensure that your communities are achieving their full potential to set an example for not only landlords in Austin, but maybe landlords throughout the country of what a landlord can do and some of the benefits of uh, advocating for the potential of your community. There's three layers to my answer. I think when I look back to the two years that I served at the Housing Authority, there's one moment that I'm going to take away uh, for the rest of my life, and it'll, it shapes my leadership style. And this was related to COVID. We have uh, the Housing Authority of the City of Austin, so Hakka here in Austin, oversees 18 public housing communities. Four of them are mostly comprised of elderly or senior residents, so they're at great risk. And likely, um, strong majority of them have health underlying health issues, so that th- these are extremely vulnerable communities. Um, if one of them gets it, uh, this could spread across the community um, and, and impact a lot of people. It could be a, a crisis. So when I think about this, we had a resident call us. So we listened. And this resident said, I need to get tested for COVID because I wanna, I, I'm scared to die. This was someone who was older and had underlying health conditions. And my do- the doctors say I need to drive to the testing site, but I don't have a car. And they were doing a drive-through, and the response locally was, wow. "We don't. We this is all we can do. We're in a crisis mode. Um, that's not that important." And so the other piece to that was, um, at the time, the agency was like, "That's not in our lane. That's not in our lane. Let's just follow public health." But I think the the thing that led to a success at the end was this second layer, was that my department consisted of public housing residents, meaning. They were there advocating fiercely, saying, this is our business. These, this is health. And so what we ended up doing was convincing a local health community here to partner with us to do door-to-door, floor-by-floor COVID testing on-site for this community. And we did multilingual outreach and called people, and we communicated with virtually every resident that lived there and got a yes, no, or maybe and sharp coordination. While the local public health department was struggling to understand what 
site-based testing could look like. I mean, they spent months talking about this. We spent two weeks organizing and launching and implementing it where we mainstreamed what this looked like and actually uh, set precedent. And now our practice became a best practice where community was pointing at it and sort of pressured public health to speed it up. You know, how is it that a housing authority could do this in two weeks and a public housing, a public health agency has spent months just talking about it. And after we did that, they came up with a plan. And so I, I think that's, it was a very radical approach, but it had a lot of outcomes that benefited folks beyond public housing. So. Yeah. It's a kind of an incredible story of servant leadership and not just an example for landlords, but example for other public, um, service institutions. And uh, that's that's amazing. So, um, Rodolfo, before we uh, end, I want to just ask you if there's um, anything that uh, our listeners should be reading or, or learning about. Uh, is there anywhere that you want to point them? This is, I guess, your chance to sort of pitch whatever it is that um, that is important to you right now or that you're working on and you're proud of. Now that I've walked away from my role, I've been spending some time just kind of pushing that reset, but also reflecting where would my community need me next? And I can't help but start to think about this big picture uh, for the housing spectrum. I am starting to see this big picture where you have homelessness on one end and the next to that, maybe the shelters, permanent housing, public housing, affordable housing, and then market rate. And housing operates in those silos, right? They don't really talk to each other. But tenants or people may experience that spectrum across their lifetime or may stay stuck in one. I don't know. Likely that they'll shift um, because life happens, right? And I think a lot about how cities across the country need to understand the infrastructure for housing and connect it. Get, it, get them to talk to each other because at some point, let's just say you had a home and something hit you, like a, a, you had a life crisis and maybe that puts you towards homelessness or public housing. Um, we need to really break silos, catch them together, uh, learn how to catch folks, right? When folks fall, because that's, I, I, to me, that's a very beautiful image. Um, yeah. So with that said, I'm starting to read, um, I've been ordering a lot of books to, to kind of get me to think about what that could look like. And one of the books that I'm reading is uh, Radical Cities. I, I, I just started it, so I can't um, give anything away, unfortunately, at the moment. But I'm excited to just merge into this. Yeah, Radical Cities. Okay, uh, that's that's going on my, on my reading list right now. Um, Rodolfo, thank you so much for an amazing conversation. We're really glad that you were able to join us today and felt like we uh, were able to learn a lot from you. And I really hope that some folks from New York's own housing authority are, are listening in because I feel like uh, a lot of the lessons that you shared are are really important and um, you know something that we can learn, uh, we can all learn from. Yeah, thank you for having me. So listeners, thanks for joining another episode of the Rent Stories podcast. I know we took you all out of New York to visit Texas, but Rodolfo's efforts were so compelling and relevant to issues in New York. We knew we had something to learn from him. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the Rent Stories podcast wherever you get your podcasts and visit us at rentcity.co for the best place to read and write reviews about New York City apartment rentals. 
Bye.